From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post Podcast. Here with Gus Casteros, hockey analyst for McKean's Hockey, for Roto World, for the internet at large. Gus, how's it going, man? Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, you're. I think this is your fourth time on. Uh, I feel like every time you come on, I have to like recap your your previous stints. But you've become not in an official way in any way, but in my heart and in my head, uh, the resident X's and O's guy. Um, we talked about the evolution of a forward. We talked about the evolution of uh, the defenseman at the NHL level, and now we're gonna do some sort of pseudo third round preview. Um, and mix in a couple other top topics. We'll talk about at the end here uh, the Leafs GM post and its vacancy and who might fill it. Uh, your thoughts, my thoughts. So we're I got I gotta say off the top, we're recording this Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening, um, hours before Game Seven between Winnipeg and Nashville. So keep that in mind when uh, you're listening to this Friday morning and you're going, what What, what are these guys talking about? Um, Going off of that, we will start with the series that is actually determined, the matchup that is determined. Tampa Bay versus the Washington Capitals. Gus, broad strokes here. Um, what, what do you think uh, is the number one storyline here, uh, Lightning versus the Capitals? So you could probably go with one particular storyline for each team. The biggest one for Tampa Bay is what the hell has happened to their top line scorers. Stamkos hasn't scored very much. One goal into an empty net over the last 22 games, I think. Uh, Kucherov has been better in terms of generating offense, but they're not scoring at the same pace. Um, I'm okay with that in round one because you can kind of get away with it. I'm less okay with it in round two, although they ended up playing a Boston team that they severely punished. Um, but now they're in the thick of things, and you don't win cups unless your top players perform. Stamkos is there to score goals. Kucherov is there to score goals. Whatever fire hydrant or whoever they put on that third line is there to support them. So that, that I think, is the biggest storyline coming out of Tampa Bay. Yeah, right now it's JT Miller. That's, uh, that's the third member of that line. And it's funny you bring up Stamkos because I was thinking about today. You think about all the elite scorers in the league, and he's still 100% a part of that group, but I feel like he's faded to the background a bit in terms of um, being that dominant force, um, being a guy that, like, you think of Patrick Laine, Austin Matthews, um, let's see here, even Brock Besser back earlier in the year. There was sort of like a danger warning attached to them at all times, whereas Stamkos. Although he's had his moments, this year's been sort of, um, I don't want to say a step back because he's still had a pretty good year for, you know, for an NHL player standard. But in terms of his career and his trajectory, I wonder if that leg injury, if he's never going to be the same. He was he was out for basically a whole year. I mean, what was his fibula? It was a pretty serious injury. And I just wonder if, if he's just never going to hit that elite, elite level. He's still a star in this league, but... I'm glad you brought him up because I have been thinking that uh, there's something like a little off, like the screw's a little loose there. So there's two things that I think really define Stamkos in my mind. The first was he was the one who really starred in the Ovi spot. That Ovi spot could have been the Ovechkin slash Stamkos spot on the power play. The, the left circle there. Yeah. Top of the circle. Perfect one-timer, getting ready for the shot. But he stepped away from that, whether that was... Stamkos himself or a coaching decision, that part of the game kind of left him. 
he compensated. He compensated by becoming a much better net presence. And this starts from maybe even his like third or fourth year in, uh, in the NHL. And his domination going into those hard, high-danger scoring areas where you know that you're going to get a beating, broken legs, hurt ribs, hurt arms, one thing after another, could have led to a little bit of the downfall of his scoring. I don't want to write him off because that's not what you do to stars. But at the same time, Kucherov is the best player in Tampa Bay. He's the most talented. He's the most skilled. Stamkos has got fantastic skills. He hits all the four S's, but those injuries have played a bit of a factor. The fact that Tampa Bay seems to have also modeled their game around Kucherov rather than Stamkos is is a little bit telling as well. Um, And you know, Tampa Bay's depth was able to cover up some of the inadequacy or the inadequate scoring from Stamkos. And depth is important because that's what's going to win you tournaments, but not if your stars are struggling the way that he has over the first two series. He needs to get better. You mentioned the four S's there. Do you mind just running through them? Just because you said it in passing. I I know what they are, but brief brief the listeners. um, There's lots of subcategories, but the four S's of scouting are essentially speed, skill, smart, and skating. And you're you're saying Kucherov... It's all up, four up and down the list. He's all four of them, they, yeah. and and not just checkmark, but checkmark at an elite level. Right. He's, he's a, you know, and and there's things that we we misrepresent. For instance, speed I think is overrated. Not because you don't need speed, but you don't hit 100 percent of your speed all the time. You optimally work in a 75 to 80 percent. Just throwing a number out of there. So it's not just speed; it's the combination of skills that makes a good player. Kucherov ties in all the four S's. That's what makes him a star. That's what makes Crosby a star. It's what makes Kuznetsov such a fantastic player. He hits all those S's in conjunction, in the parallel, rather than like in a sequential method. Um, That's what separates players specifically. With Tampa, in the second round, they managed to dismantle the Boston attack. Uh, Game one, I bet maybe it was the wake-up call or something because they got beat, I believe it was 6-2 by the Boston Bruins. And then from then on, it was sort of their series. Um, from games three through to game five, Boston, uh, they didn't get an even strength goal. That's, that's pretty substantial. Um, it's crazy on a whole nother level because this is the Boston Bruins, a dominant uh, even strength team. And I was looking at the numbers. So... Let me run through this, and then you can kind of comment on, on maybe the why and the how. But let me give you the, the raw data here. So in the regular season, the Boston Bruins, their shot attempts at 5-on-5 five five per 60 minutes, 59.6. That's 11th among 31 teams. Pretty good. More or less a top-10 team. Their scoring chances, they were 8th. Uh, high danger chances, they were 17th. So you put that all together, you go, okay. They have some elite finishing ability that makes up for maybe uh, not having as many high danger chances as you would like. Um, you know, throw it all together and you have uh, a very good offensive team. Um, versus Toronto in that first round series, their shot attempts per 60 um, was mo- was a little higher than their regular season average. It was 61.7 versus 59.6. They were fifth out of the 16 teams. Uh, their scoring chances, they were tops among uh, those 16 teams. So anyway, so they led they led the first round in scoring chances per 60. Uh, high danger, they were sixth out of those 16 teams. So again, uh, they're looking like the Bruins. But then versus Tampa, uh, they finished last in shot attempts per 60. 
They finished last in scoring chances per 60, and this is among the, the eight remaining teams. And then they finished last in high danger chances. And all those raw numbers were cut by about a third. So Tampa was clearly doing something very well against this Boston team that through the regular season and against Toronto, mind you, Toronto has its glaring weaknesses defensively, but putting that aside, Boston looked like Boston during the regular season. Boston looked like Boston during during the first round versus the Leafs. And then Tampa came along, and aside from game one, uh, Boston was minimized. So let's talk about Toronto series first. Um, going into the playoffs, my impression of the Bruins was they were a phenomenal one-line team. They were Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand, David Pasternak, a, a solid enough three pairings on the defense to support that line, and that's how they won. Their depth is great, but I didn't think that it was mature enough to be able to play the type of game expected. In it's the a playoffs. work in progress, their depth. I don't think they're they're there yet. But there were enough individual components that they were able to, to work. Jake DeBrusque yes. looks like he's good. Danton Heinen, although he faltered a little bit in the playoffs, was having a fantastic season. So there are components that Boston had in the background that aided them during the regular season. And similar to Chicago a year before that, your depth can take you through an 82-game regular season. When you're going head-to-head with a team and you have video that you can kind of specifically pinpoint and try to minimize and do whatever strategy that you need to stop, uh, that depth doesn't really come out into play. And if it does, then, man, you have a team going forward, similar to what Tampa Bay has. The depth is good enough to be able to support anything above and beyond what their stars are producing. So Boston comes in, and while we talk about the Leafs' glaring defensive problems, that's not what killed them. The Leafs simply had zero zone time. Why? Because they get the puck in, one and done. One shot, one chance, puck was back the other way. And when it went back the other way, the pressure that Boston was able to to wield over the defensive zone in Toronto's defensive zone is the separating item that I felt cost the Leafs the series. Yeah, they won seven games, but they struggled in every single one of their wins. Boston was the better team. They had better chances. They had better control of the play. Game one against Tampa Bay. They did the exact same thing. They put everybody out into the sides. They made sure that Tampa Bay had one and done, and then they capitalized on some of the frustrations, and they really hit a lot of penalty trouble. Ran up the score. Boston looks great, 6-2. What does Tampa do? They adjust it. And how did they adjust? They took away that opportunity for Boston to maintain a lot of that zone time and got the puck back out. Now Boston's on their heels. And while what they were doing to Toronto, Tampa Bay did to them. Not to the same degree, but enough to limit Boston's 5-on-5 game. So in order to win, you're going to have to get penalties. To get penalties, you need the puck. If I have the puck and you're not getting penalty, and I'm not giving you a penalty, you're not scoring any goals. How are you going to win a series like that? So Tampa Bay used a little bit of Boston's um, tactics in a modified manner to nullify their individual scoring at even strength and force them to be so good on the power play that that's what's the deciding factor. And Boston just couldn't handle something like I mean, that. I mean, they still produce. That, that Bergeron line between the power play and I think they might have had a shorthand goal. Like, they were still in the series, but you're not going to win a series if you cannot if you literally cannot produce at at five on five and you win five on five by scoring goals maintaining possession of the puck forcing pressure on your opponent 
and forcing them into penalties. Penalties are a, are a distinct part of a good strategic, um, I should guess, I should say philosophy. Because if you can strike on the power play and not have to worry about skating around and playing defense five on five, you definitely have a distinct, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for, advantage over your opponent. Tampa Bay really did that to Boston, and it was fantastic. Well, and a perfect example of sort of a microcosm of this, the whole series and the way that Tampa Bay has gone about their playoffs. Braden Point, 10 games, 10 drawn penalties. Braden Point, as uh, alluded to by Joe Smith of The Athletic, out bergeron Patrice Bergeron. I thought that was a great line. I thought it, it just kind of summed up the whole series where you're talking about... You know, there's this smothering freight train of a line that just disappears against Tampa in the in the latter half of of that series, and you're going. It, Braden points the guy that's taken over. It's not. It's not. It's not five, four or five times Selkie winner uh, Patrice Bergeron, and I, like point has ten. He, he's he's collected ten of his own points. Um, he had this one ridiculous uh, individual effort where he came over the blue line, split the D between Chara and McAvoy, and then uh, and then deked out uh, Rask. I mean, considering he's a third rounder, like he's got to be one of the one of the best steals of the last I don't know decade, based on how he has gone from will he make the team last year um, to where he is now. Um, and and also when I was thinking about the this series of, of Tampa. And, and the Capitals and how the two teams have sort of um, developed over the season and, you know, Washington losing a bunch of bodies in the offseason is Tampa's done well with their system in terms of Syracuse producing impact players, uh, Yanni Gord, uh, even Killorn and Palat. Like, you, you go through their, their roster and more than half have played at least a season in the AHL with at one point was with John Cooper. Like, I just feel like there's a, there's a very, um, the, the learning curve or the, or the curve of this team is just peaking at the right time. Um, on individual levels, you know, you, you know, you talk about point or Kucherov or on the back end with Hedman. And then also just as a team, like uh, there's a lot of guys that have been in the organization long enough to, to really understand, uh, the strategy and, and the culture and all that stuff. Um, and now here we are. They're going to face the Capitals, who are, let's face it, not as good as probably previous versions of, of them. Yet they're they're far in, in the playoffs. So it's interesting that you mentioned specifically because all three of those teams have have distinctions that I like to to point out. Tampa Bay has the ability to pluck their own players and plug them into their roster. That's what championship teams do. They maintain their stars or at least some semblance of structure in their roster, and they plug players in, whether that's through an acquisition or homegrown talent, whatever the case is. Clearly, homegrown talent will be cheaper, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And as long as you're, you do, as long as you're providing proper asset management at the management level and you're plugging in players without destroying your whole profile and, and, and the way that you do business, then I think that that's fine. Boston, on the other hand, I think had to go through a bit of a transition. And while they still maintain that first line with Bergeron and, and, and Marchand, they don't have that same kind of lineup that they probably had maybe even as soon as two or three years ago. You know, David Krejci is probably the relic in their depth, but all the rest of those players, they're all new. They're different. They're, they're, their approach has to be different. Washington, at the same time, wasn't able 
to, I think, bring in the same kind of homegrown talent that they have. There's smatterings here and there. And and Andre Barakovsky's out. Uh, Jacob Verana hasn't Absolutely. gotten his you know his ice time. Like there's sort of asterisks around the roster, but overall you are definitely onto something where their depth, their bottom six is. I don't want to say a bunch of nobodies because they're not, but they're replaceable across the league. There's a lot of guys there that you go, he's he's an okay hockey player. He's an okay NHLer, but every team you, you look at this Tampa roster and you go, this is a championship caliber roster. Four lines, three defense pairings. Even Anthony Sorelli, we're talking about homegrown talent. He two years ago he was playing for the Oshawa Generals, uh, gets drafted late, as in passed over a year or two. Third rounder, um, Yanni Gord, undrafted. Um, as I mentioned, point. Um, Tyler Johnson's been with the team for a while, had his had his um, year or two in, in Syracuse. Like, there's been a, a real marination of this Absolutely. group. Um, and then, obviously, they add guys like JT Miller and, and Ryan McDonough. Um, and then, just just to, to sort of marry all these points and talk about the series uh, in general, I just think that Washington... The way that this is uh, aligning or, or the way that these teams match up is Braden Holpe has to stand on his head and Tampa Bay has to take some penalties because that Washington power play is absolutely terrifying. Like those are the two X factors and I realize that they're pretty they're pretty obvious, but um, if we excuse those, I just think that this this might be a blowout if, if, if neither of those things go um go Washington's way, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if, if it was a four- or five-game series. I, I feel pretty confident in the Lightning. It's similar to Boston, too. If Rask doesn't stand on his head, Chara's not the same guy. If they shut down their first line, I mean, it's essentially the blueprint that Tampa Bay used in Boston to be able to shut down Ovechkin and the crew there. And, you know, you have there's lots of question marks around their goaltending. They started with Grubauer to start the playoffs, whether that was just a warning shot or something. But Holtby's been good, not great. And, you know, it, the, I can't justify it, and I can't really give you an X and O's answer on all of this, but Washington really made Pittsburgh's defense look as bad as I think they should have two as, to three seasons ago. Like, like as bad as they look on paper without Chris Letang. Yeah. yeah. You look at the lineup and you go, uh, yeah, okay, Brian Dumoulin, and yeah, then just a bunch of... Uh, and then Washington dismantled them. That, that's, I mean, when you look at it from that previous series... If Pittsburgh doesn't come back in game one where they're losing 2 nothing and come back with a 3-2 win, Washington's got them out in five games. So they outplayed the Penguins to the degree where they should have just... Yeah, it was their series. Knocked them around. Series. Now that's what I think Tampa Bay is going to end up doing to Washington. Which is interesting because I can see some parallels with, you know, Pittsburgh has that really high-end talent. So does Washington. But they're both flawed teams. And Tampa Bay... Even though they started the year off as everyone's favorite, as this dominant powerhouse force, they they had their their bumps along the way, um, and they were sort of forgotten about, right? It's like they were the flavor of the month in October, maybe in November a bit, and then after that, the Bruins just you know they were on fire on on every level in terms of special teams, underlying numbers, counting stats, all that. Um, but I think that Tampa's been like sneakily you know laying in the weeds as. As much as a, a you know division winning team can be, the top three teams in that division also really did have the benefit of a good thirty games where they were able to just experiment and do different things. It's not like they were going to be out of the playoffs. 
So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. on that specific note, you saw it in the Leafs. They experimented a lot, including like taking players out of their lineup with Matt Martin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Bruins did something sort of along those lines as well, trying to integrate that depth with that great first line. Tampa Bay has just been Tampa Bay. They've been consistent throughout this year. Goaltending has been an issue in certain spurts, but for the most part, they've been firing on all cylinders. They've been scoring the way that they uh, I would expect them to score. They upgraded their depth. They brought in Ryan McDonough and TJ Miller. JT Miller. JT. You just, you, I just screwed both of them. I think TJ Miller is actually the actor, isn't he? Is he? Is he? Yeah. The, guy from, the comedian uh, Sil- guy. Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that they were deep enough to even go far prior to the trade deadline, and then they stack up on and bringing in these kind of players. That just kind of shows you that there's a killer mentality happening in Tampa Bay. Absolutely. And uh, I, I mentioned a couple minutes ago about how if things don't break Washington's way, it could be over real quick. Well, another factor is Nicholas Backstrom is questionable. I don't know what's going on there, but he skated today. This is, again, it's Thursday um, a day before the season, or sorry, the series starts, and him and Barakovsky are still out day to day. And you, you, in the playoffs, especially, you have no idea what that means. But regardless, Backstrom is not going to be 100%. And he's kind of gone down the pecking order, at least in the last little bit here, with Kuznetsov really eating up a lot of ice time, and deservedly so. He's had a very good playoffs, had a, had a really good year. Um, so that's something else to consider is that. Not only does Washington not stack up on paper when they're healthy, they might be losing another guy in Backstrom for who knows how long. And two big impact players. Like, Barakovsky struggled too, but, I mean, he's still a potentially impactful player. Um, I think that the biggest fear, the biggest issue in this particular series is the way that Tampa Bay's defense is able to overcome things. Um, I think they do it much better than the Caps do, so I, I would expect more Tampa Bay zone time simply because of the way that they're able to transition and get the puck back into Washington zone. Plus a guy named Chandler Stevenson is <laughs> is, is getting minutes for uh, for Washington. That's nothing against him, but like there's just, they're, they're top 12, you know, there Walker's is. a good story, the first Aussie. Sure. Absolutely. Brett Absolutely. Connolly is, is a nice dude and, and, you know, a fine player, but he's getting probably more minutes than he should. Travis Boyd played in uh, the final game against Pittsburgh. Like, these just—it's just not supposed to happen this way. So I just wonder if the wheels will fall off. Watch Brett Connolly be that one player who was drafted by Tampa Bay become the the, the burden be fun. on there. You know, there's a storyline if you're looking at it from Washington's perspective. Let's talk about the Western Conference. And again, uh, Winnipeg, Nashville haven't finished their series, so this is more about Vegas. This discussion. I'm going to hand it over to you right now in terms of X's and O's and, and the way that, that Vegas runs their team and, and the, the, the strategy and the playing style because you hear over and over again, they're fast, they're hardworking, um, they they can clog up the neutral zone. That's been a thing in the playoffs. Um, but from your perspective, are you seeing anything deeper after you've had a full season and, and a couple rounds here to, to get a look at them? Well, two specific things kind of jump to mind. One, I don't have the data, but I wish I did have the data. I feel that Vegas is probably one of the teams that racks up the highest amount of slot line passes. Let's talk about what a slot line is. Slot line is at the top of the crease and move it up to the top of the circles 
I extend it to the top of the circles. It actually should be a little bit. But that imaginary line in the middle that divides the zone. So if you're on the right side and you pass the puck to the left side, everybody has to shift over, including the goaltender, including the openings that get created when the goaltender moves over. There's a better chance of scoring. There have been plenty of studies. Ryan Stimson has done tons of studies on that. Um, the passing project. That's correct. Um and one of the biggest things, other than the fact that playing behind the net and is really good, is those slot line passes. They're pre important. Pre-shot movement is... I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? Like, the goalie... If, you, if the goalie is squared up to you, yep. you're going to have a lower percentage of scoring. If he's moving across the net and the puck moves faster than him and the shot's taken before he gets over there, the puck's going to go in at a higher percentage. Watch William Nylander making passes to Austin Matthews on the power play, and that's your perfect example. One side to the other side, there's always going to be an opening. Somebody's going to exploit it. If they don't outright score, there's enough of a scramble from loose pucks that get created from that play. So that's one of the deciding, one of the biggest distinctions I get from Vegas. So why does that actually happen? We talk about their speed. Speed is good. It's relative. I think that they're competitive in terms of, I mean, we're talking about what were supposed to be replacement level players going to an expansion team. The skill level in today's NHL, I said this at the beginning of the year, they're going to be the best expansion team you've ever seen. I didn't expect this by all means, so let's make sure that we are, we're not overstating that. But, but you mean more like... From a the, skilled level? Because the, the standard of... Of skill is, is the highest it's never been, that even the, the extra Correct. parts can, if they have the opportunity, can produce? You got it. And some of those extra parts were actually dealt for other better asset management. Like, I mean, Vegas did a really good job maintaining Yeah, Riley assets. Smith, Jonathan Marshall. So that play really takes place because they're able to transition to offense. You force that transition. So they played well enough defensively that they're able to transition to offense and force the chaos in the opposition zone to be able to make plays over the slot line or put pressure below the zone, uh, below the goal line, or do the things that are putting other teams on their heels, not allowing them to set up defensively, not allowing them to be as aggressive forechecking because they have control of the puck and then move into the, the ways that they score. And you have to figure, even if Gallant probably said that wrong, but Gerard Gallant, no, even if he didn't care about his time in Florida, he had to have taken some of the things that have come through the analytics work that they've presented and taken that to heart. The slot line is one of the biggest ones. I'm sure that there are others that we're not aware of. Let's fast forward a little bit to the playoffs. They come across an LA Kings team that can't score. They simply just weren't able to generate scoring chances. Part of that was Vegas. A lot of that was Los Angeles. And when they did get chances, they hit the post. Like, I remember Kopitar had terrible luck. But, yes, there was a serious disconnect between... You can't do what, what the Kings did yes. and expect to have success. So it gives Vegas an upper hand. I thought the Kings were good enough that they changed things enough that they were able to at least maintain a, a decent enough defensive structure to go to the conference finals. Vegas slapped them around. And they did a good job at it. Next round, they hit San Jose. Flawed team, missing Joe Thornton. While they were able to score better... They looked tired, too. San they Jose were looked the, really tired. Sorry, continue. They weren't the same San Jose Sharks we've expected in the past. They weren't exactly a powerhouse team. There were lots of questions on the back end there. Um, Goaltending was a still a question mark, even though Martin Jones has been great. Good, not great. That's a big distinction, good, not great. Absolutely. 
Um, and Vegas really used the similar type of style that they've been playing all season, forced the transitions, forced the chaos into the other zone. They came along with a – every team is allowed one blowout in the playoffs. 7 nothing, they lose game one, big deal. San Jose comes back, and they, they prove that they can make this into a series. But they weren't challenged. Vegas wasn't challenged the way that they should have been challenged by a playoff team hungry enough to take it to the next level. They're going to come across an opponent now in either of Winnipeg or Nashville where – Offense is the primary catalyst. Defense is just a, a, a construct of supporting that offense, more so for Winnipeg than it is for Nashville. And they're not going to have the ability to do the transition type of game and force the chaos the way that they've been able to do it with the Kings and the Sharks. So this next round will be much, much more difficult for Vegas to play the Vegas game that got them to this point now. And even if they were to implement something like that, they haven't faced an offense like the, the Jets or the Preds. And that, I think, alone has to force a little bit of a change. And who knows what those tweaks will come out of. We're all expecting Vegas to kind of falter and all that. I kind of hope that they win the Cup just from the narrative oh, it'd perspective. Oh, it would be so good. But, you know, the reality is they're now going to come up against the two teams that I think are probably the hungriest to make it to that final. Preds to, had a taste. The Jets really want to get to that. So I think that this next round is going to be where we find out how Vegas can really stack up to a contending team. The Sharks, the Kings, they were not contenders. That's the crazy thing about this is that if you rewind all the way to like September, you're going, okay, the Oilers, definitely going to make the playoffs, probably going a deep run. Calgary, probably going to make the playoffs at worst, you know, right there to the end of the regular season. Um, the Kings, a lot of people were down on them, but you go, okay, they're, they're good enough. Um, San Jose, sort of similar. And I'm like, the Pacific on paper looked pretty crazy. Looked like a very, a very difficult road, Dallas. Um, and then <laughs> here we are, and Vegas, let's face it, didn't have the, di- the most difficult time um, between other, you know, their opponents' injuries or their just like you said with the the lack of offense like that's that Kings team if they had squeaked by Vegas they would have been wiped clean by whoever was waiting in the next round like they just weren't yeah. they didn't deserve to move on and they didn't um, and this isn't related to take anything away from Vegas but I do feel like Nashville and Winnipeg I, I, I feel confident talking about them as a group which is nice because one of them is going to be playing them <laughs> um, that they're just on another level that they're complete hockey teams um, I think Winnipeg has uh, exceeded my expectations for this year. I thought highly of, of Nashville coming in, but I think Winnipeg um, is maybe uh, a rung up from, from what I thought. I thought that they would be a playoff team and be a, a good team, but not a great team, which they have shown. Um, but just to, to, to come back to Vegas and, and, and keep the, the spotlight on them, which player or players, now that you have about almost, you know, what are we at, 92 games worth of, of, of their season or whatever it is, 92, 93, um, what players, and you can't say William Carlson just because everyone talks about him. No worries. Excluding him, and obviously Fleury isn't, isn't really a surprise, even though, let's face it, what he's done so far this year is pretty impressive. Give me two or three players that you've just been blown away by in terms of what they've been able to do and your your previous uh, sort of outlook on their career. So I kind of figured Vegas was going to be a place where players 
go for their careers to die. Um, like, well, and I mean, I guess if you want to play that game, uh, Grabowski. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Clayton Stoner's been injured all year. Understood. No, but I'm just, I'm just interjecting. You like, there actually are a couple guys that that's happening. True, to, but true. we're just not seeing them. <laughs> um, but I felt that what you got from guys like, like Derek Englund, I expected nothing out of Derek Englund. Man, has he been great! And it's not just that he hasn't done anything spectacular. He's just been a decent hockey player. Yes, Cody Eakin. Now, I've always liked Cody Eakin and, and limited scoring, but the things that he brings to the table are good in support of those elements. And he's been fantastic for Vegas this year. Like, if you think about a championship roster, if he's your fourth-line center, you're, you're, you're good. laughing. You're oh, laughing. you're great. And they've moved him up in the roster just because of the way that expansion teams work, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we don't need to mention Carlson because of the shooting percentage and all that. And I think that he's a bit of a mirage too, but... He's a good player. But but you mentioned those slot passes, and I know that he has benefited from Riley Smith and Marticil feeding and him those, all day. And he has a good two. shot, so that's something to keep in mind. And those two guys also come from the Florida school where Gallant was probably there you go. trained and thought, you know, hey, if we can do this, maybe this can happen. So those two in particular have probably been the most impressive. And I think that they really should have. We expected nothing out of Carlson going into Vegas. We expected very little out of Eakin in England, and maybe we wanted more out of James Neal. We won't talk about Flurry. Flurry has been fantastic. We'll give him the benefit of that doubt. But Marchessault and Smith were the targeted offensive stars, and they've produced. They've gone through the adversity. They've gone above and beyond what their even my expectations were. They brought Carlson along with them. They've become a formidable enough duo that when they're on the ice together, they're a, a legit threat. So you could put another fire hydrant on, on that line and still produce some scoring. So those players, specifically Eakin, England, and the two ex-Florida players, have just been the hallmark of what has brought success to Vegas. Alex, Alex Tuck has been... At least, at least recently, like he walked through the whole San Jose team. Um, I can't remember what game it was. I think it might have been uh, the first game when they blew them out. That was it. That was it. That yeah. was Tuck's game. It was like I'm just going. This is shinny to him. Yeah. Um, but he's not that kind of player, though, John. From my understanding and the way that I kind of see his progression, he's not really that elite top end scorer. He's got skills. All yeah. NHLers got skills. But he's shown something above and beyond these playoffs that perhaps I actually should have used him as a prime example rather than the others. And David Perron getting, I think, off the top of my head, like 50, 60 points. Like, I, I'm i sorry, but I didn't see that one coming. Just because you mentioned guys, you know, going there to see their, their careers dying. Like, how many chances has he had that, you know, whether it was in Edmonton or... Um, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Anaheim. Yeah, I mean, he played in St. Louis for a while, and, and then he's bounced around, like, you know, season here, season there, and, like, just comes onto the scene in Vegas, and it's all of a sudden, like, and, and it didn't seem like there was much of an adjustment period. It's just sort of, he's the one guy where it's like, poof. Yep, here he is. Now, now, I'm, now I'm, like, a top six guy. Uh, I can produce at a, at a pretty high level, and it it was fairly consistent from the start of the season to the end. It's like, that that if I if I were to pick one guy that I just thought oh like sure I mean sure put him on your your third or fourth line and he'll do his thing and cool, but he kind of went another way and 
completely blew out my uh, my expectations. I like a lot of those Vegas players. They've all stepped into a particular role and they've played it well and they've been able to adjust. And, and you know, it doesn't start with just the players. I think that the coaching staff has done a fantastic job motivating and implementing their own type of structure that these players are able to play within. And that, I think, it's that combination. It can't just be players or it has to be a combination of both. And Vegas is just a good enough story, apart from them being an expansion team, where if you take away all of the glitter of, of being a first-year team, the coaching staff did a really good, good, good job of using the assets that they had at hand to implement their strategies. Well, yeah, if you take away the expansion stuff, like how do we define good coaches in the NHL? It's a very hard thing to really grasp if you're not behind the scenes, right? When we talk about the Jack Adams, we're always like... I mean, that guy, you know, he's made the playoffs when no one thought he would make the playoffs. Let's give him a, a finalist vote here. Like, there's sort of, there's obviously more depth to it. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating. But at the end of the day, we're sort of, like, stuck with this whole hypothesis that this guy did more that, with less. And Gallant, like, is obviously the runaway winner this year. It hasn't been announced, but it's going to happen. And... It might be one of the best performances in NHL history. That sounds crazy, but from a coach in terms of this is what you got in September and here's what happened at the end of the regular season because obviously the playoffs don't count towards the rewards. Um, it's phenomenal. Like what? Like you could have said they could have had half of the wins. I think they had 51 wins. You could have had half and you went... That's about what I expected, <laughs> but he had double that. It's incredible. When a, a losing season actually met your expectations, and you would have been, yeah, okay, you did a good enough job. Good job, Glenn. Yeah. You, you got lucky. You did good. All, pulling out a performance like this, it's, you know, there's a little bit of an FU to the Florida Panthers as well. There's a little bit of a, you know, guys, I can still coach in this league. Just give me an opportunity to do so. And, I mean, this is a great spot on his resume. However... He still has to do it next year and the year after that and the year after that. Hopefully the assets get better, but he still has to do his yes. job. They, they've raised the bar. That, that's one thing about this Vegas team. Is like, what if next year they're just like a normal team? And that poor Seattle GM that has to take oh, over yes. and explain to people, well, we, weren't, we didn't make the playoffs because blah, 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 blah. Hopefully there's, enough, there's smart enough people out there. Like I hope that that Seattle job doesn't have a dark cloud over it because – of what's happened in Vegas because it's such an anomaly. It's such a special situation that you just, it's not, I'm sorry, Seattle, you're not getting that. Like it's not even a hockey. There's, thing. there's probably a 0.0001% of you replicating that. So just, if you're a potential Seattle fan, just forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. Put this stuff out of your mind. Okay. So one game left in the second round, um, who would be your front runner for con Smythe? I'm putting you on the spot here. You know, it's kind of kind of crazy, but when you look at it from what Tampa Bay's done, Braden Point is probably that one player that, you know, if he doesn't win it outright, he deserves to be in the conversation. So that's probably the guy that I would kind of lean on. Um, well, and, and just to, to touch on that, John, John Cooper said that he was the best player in the Boston series, and I realize that, it you know, it's his own player, he's biased, but like... I mean, that's sort of saying he was better than Kucherov, better than Hedman. Like, you could, there's a lot of good players on a Tampa team, and he felt the need to focus on point, which 
I think he has a very strong case, but I think that also says something. It's point on point. It's, 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 it's exactly what I would have figured. And he overmet, like I had expected very little. Not that I expected little. These are NHL players. But I didn't expect point to be as um, um, impactful as he's been so far. Well, I remember when we were talking, uh, it would have been the last time you were, you were on the podcast, about forwards and how they developed. And I asked you about Braden Point because he's kind of this interesting highly skilled guy who you know retrieves pucks he back checks hard he forechecks like he's sort of like a, a jack of all trades in a lot of ways um and even then i don't think i was i had the the type of respect for his game that i do now he's like even over the last couple months he's he's his star has risen and it's funny because people are going to remember that really cool play that he had in in was it game one or game two or whatever it was but that's not him his offense is a derivative of the hard work that he puts in to generate those chances, either on his own or in conjunction with his teammates. So it, it's it's nice to see those little elements of skill because he is a highly skilled player, but he works. And the work ethic translates into good structure, and that structure translates into scoring. I'm going to say Philip Forsberg, even though when people are listening to this, the Winnipeg Jets might have won. <laughs> but um, I'm now secretly going to start rooting for uh, the National Predators tonight because I just think Forsberg has... Uh, there's always been a question mark, right, in Nashville in terms of the number one center. And during the regular season, whether it was this year or last year, he wasn't dominant. Like, don't get me wrong, he, he's a perfectly fine number one center, but he's more like middle of the pack number one in the league. But then when the playoffs start, there's some sort of extra gear there. And, and I realize that that's sort of something you can't really quantify or it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. But it's sort of like with Sidney Crosby, and I've talked about it on this podcast before, like there's playoff Sidney Crosby and then there's regular season Sidney Crosby. I think it's it's similar for Forsberg and the numbers that he's put up, the goals that he's scored. I tweeted about the other night, every time I turn around and the Predators are on, on the TV, I'm watching a Forsberg highlight, him like wrapping the puck around the goal or just doing something that shouldn't be done when the opponent is a Winnipeg Jets. Um, and so anyways, I just seven goals, 15 points, 12 games, and he's out shooting Alexander Ovechkin, one of the uh, shot happy guys of all time in the playoffs. So I think that says something. I mean, like not getting your shot. Uh, blocked, I think, is is something that um, that is sort of underrated, I guess you could say. Like, getting your shot through, I think it's worth something, and he's been able to do that, and it makes him that much more dangerous. Yeah, putting himself into positions where he can get his shots on goal, that's an important element of skill. And you could talk about points highlight reels, but, man, Forsberg's had some fantastic <laughs> goals this, this postseason. Yeah, if you're, if you're just catching up on the playoffs right now, maybe go to YouTube or Twitter yeah, and type definitely. in Braden Point, and then after that... Be prepare to be blown away by typing in Philip Forsberg and watching <laughs> all the gifts because uh, there's a good handful of them. Okay, Gus, before I let you go, we're going to touch on the Maple Leafs uh, GM vacancy. To I don't have any insider knowledge here. I believe you don't, but let's go off of what we do know, and that's Lou Lamorello is obviously out um, in terms of being the GM. He is now a senior advisor. Brendan Shanahan, the president of Maple Leafs, needs to fill that GM spot. Um, the strong word, and I say that as uh, sort of gathering reports from from people who are very in the know, the Bob McKenzie's, Elliot Freeman, is that Dubis, Kyle Dubis, the assistant GM that that runs the AHL Marlies and uh, heads the analytics department, 
he is the front runner. At least that's based on what these type of uh, insiders are hearing. And then Mark Hunter is right there with him. Um, uh, he runs the scouting, also assistant GM. Two different but similar people, uh, guys from different generations. I believe Hunter is 55. Dubas is early 30s, 30, 31. Um, one is obviously more data-inclined, but also a quote-unquote hockey guy. One guy is a hockey guy, but also um, as articulated by his... Um, his, uh, his protege, Rob Simpson in, in London, who tweeted about the other day, uh, Mark Hunter, very good at uh, establishing a winning culture. And I think it ba- <laughs> I think Mark Hunter can back that up with the championships that they won at the junior level in London. Um, so to, it's a very, very, very good problem for the Leafs to have. But a decision will be made, you would think, soon. I don't know if it's going to be after the Marlies are out of the playoffs, what the holdup is. But it looks like it's those two. In the hunt, and Brendan Shanahan, I know, didn't rule out external candidates, but it sounds like there probably aren't any. So, I, I would rule out any outsider. I think at this point that the Leafs pretty much know what they have in both Dubis and Hunter. If they are to bring an outside candidate, I think it's just more or less for show. Um, if you can't pick one or the other here, then something has seriously gone wrong while under Lamorello's watch. So let's touch upon both individually. So we talk about Dubas being an, uh, a, a data guy, a math guy, an analytics guy. He's a hockey guy. He's always been a hockey guy, and you're the one that pointed it out. Stick boy, agent, part of the suit. He's, he's, he didn't do that because he was an analytics and, guy. And I should mention, when you are the GM of the, the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, you're in the you're talking to the business people. You're talking to the coaches every day. Um, you know, you're talking to the trainers. Like every single part of the operation, you don't have an assistant GM. Um, Kyle Raftis, the current GM, I had on the podcast. It would have been, a, I don't know, it, was it, it would have been almost a year ago, about ten months ago. And he said, you know what? That's that's kind of the gig that you get is that it's all encompassing, and obviously there's a lot of benefits to that. But it goes back to your point that Dubis has been pigeonholed as this analytics guy. And don't get me wrong, he's a forward-thinking guy who um, obviously is not afraid of, of looking at sort of the um, the statistical angle of, of whatever the problem or the situation may be. Um, but by no means uh, is he this guy who just walked off the street with, uh, with, a, with a, a chart spreadsheet or whatever. Or something. So uh, in that vein... He's understood the importance of and the implementation of data. So for Dubis, he took hockey ideas, turned them into either potential data ideas, and implemented the results. Let's go to Hunter. You don't get as successful as Hunter by being close-minded, an old-school hockey guy. He had Mitch Marner on his team. He drafted Mitch Marner and his team. And between him and his brother Dale Hunter, these guys were as old school as you could get when they were players. Probably bef- when they purchased. And so I, I, I worked in London and I, I covered them, but I wasn't around when they purchased the team and had to turn it around. I can only speak for when I was there. Hmm. They wanted skill, nothing but skill. They didn't care how short you were or um, you know where you were from. You know if you're American, Canadian, Russian. They just wanted to win, and they knew skill won. Um, 
So they found a way to revolutionize, which is or evolve, let's call it, which is just ironic when you think about these two guys and how they're um, characterized and their past as players. It's it's interesting, right? I mean, they were goons. I don't want to use the word like they weren't goon goons, but they were hard, hard as nails. They were tough players to play against, but progressive management is not about what you were and how your thinking was. It's about taking new ideas and incorporating that into your future self. Hunter doesn't become Mark Hunter unless he changes his playing style into an all-skill requirement. He doesn't become GM or, or assistant GM of the Leafs and a prominent role if he doesn't understand the future of the game. Shanahan really preached a progressive view. You can't go and get an old school hockey guy if you're trying to project progressive views. So to think that either of these gentlemen are incapable of being progressive, I think is incorrect. Dubis is the statistical choice. Everybody that runs a blog, everybody that runs a Twitter feed, everybody that's ever used a calculator thinks Dubis is the runaway if, winner. If you just lived on Twitter, you would think that the, the fan base wants Dubis 100%. Mm. There's no doubters out there. But you don't know because that's just a fraction, right? And I have absolutely zero problem handing the keys over to this franchise to Dubis. There's no reason for me to think that he would do anything worse than anybody else that they brought in. Having said that, I don't have a problem giving the keys to Mark Hunter either. I'm sure I might even be in the minority here, but you don't get to a level where you are Mark Hunter being an old school hockey guy. You have to integrate new ideas. And I think that he's done that. At the same time, if Dubis and Hunter were to work together, look at the mentorship there. At the same time, if Mark Hunter was the GM, look at the type of ability that he probably has coming from the analytics point of view that he never had in previous uh, uh, instances. There's a duality here for both of these guys that whoever ends up at the top has to feed into one or another. And if one or another can't work in that kind of a fashion, it's going to be a, a nasty divorce and it is what it is. So the Leafs make their decision. And they make that decision based on whether or not they can get good input from both of these players with one guy happen to have the white hat. It sounds like when one gets hired, the other one is either, you know, around for the next year and then it's see you later or they're just out the door as fast as they can. It, and it, it's unfortunate, but it's 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 normal workplace, uh, I guess. Um, it's a normal environment, at least at, at the executive level, like. Let's say me and you are vying for the same job and, uh, you know, VPs, uh, se we're both VPs and it's to be senior VP and there's a lot on the line. If you don't get that job, all of a sudden, you know, let's say there's another company out there and they want you to be their senior VP. I mean, you explore are you, are, you going to be loyal to that, that, that company that just passed on you? Probably not. And by all accounts, uh, both these guys are in high demand. So it, it would, it would shock me. Um, although, as an aside, I've seen a couple people talk about like this rivalry between Dubis and Hunter uh, dating back to the OHL. I feel like just because they were competing in that league doesn't necessarily mean that they that has carried through. I mean, it's it's business, and and they were 
they were two GMs in, in a junior development league. I don't know like specifics. Like who knows? Maybe that could be completely true. But to just draw that line because they happen to be um, rivals at that time it seems a little like lazy. That's one thing that I've noticed uh, bandied about. That seems like hey hey, just because they were in the same league together in the same conference and everything, that doesn't mean that they disliked each other while they were there. You know what I mean? So They were just doing their jobs. It, the fact that they were rivals is because they had prominent roles, not because there was a hate on. And it, it's also tough, too, because, like what you said, the Marlies are still playing, so who knows what the Leafs want to do. Do they want to wait and just make sure that that's over first? Um, do they have something on the line with the Marlies still? We don't know that. Um, has the NHL maybe stepped in and said, guys, you know, you don't want to dominate the headlines. Game seven, you know, good second round. Let's kind of let this all play out before we go and, and move on. Which is just, which is super interesting because Carolina goes and, uh, you know, <laughs> hires Rod Brindamore. Uh, Don Waddell is appointed to GM and president. And Rick Dudley I mean, and there were, stuff, yeah. Yeah. Although there was, you know, chatter about it. In no way did it dominate any sort of... Uh, you know, national or international storyline. So it's funny that it, there is a very real possibility that the NHL is like hold off because the uh, the juggernaut that is the Maple Leafs and what they uh, the boom that they create by a decision. Yeah. It's possible. It's it's got to be tough on the NHL's level too. They're trying to do some kind of a marketing campaign, and I'm not justifying this. It just it seems to be that the way business is done you know, with that particular league. All right, Gus. I'm gonna let you get out of here, but first, plug your stuff. Uh, first. Give me your Twitter handle and then whatever you're working on. So right now, uh, my Twitter handle is at Cats Hockey, K with, uh, Cats with a K. Thank you very much. Um, I'm actually embarking on the McKean's Hockey Yearbook, which will be released in August. So I'm going on my what I call my summer grind. Um, what does that mean exactly? So I'm writing up 12 player profiles for each team, 31 teams. Um all the NHLers, so the prospects will be held, will be done by somebody else, and I focus on the major, the major players for every single team. So what that involves is a, a small skills-based player write-up and the fantasy write-up. Somebody else will be doing the fantasy write-up. I might do a few, but I won't dominate on that. And my job, just like a statistician or somebody with a model out there, would adjust with changing circumstances. Your player profiles have to do the same thing. I won't use the word scouting report. Scouts are people that work for teams. Everybody else is an analyst. And I'll fight to the death for that. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at me like... Because I, I get it. it annoys you? It annoys you. It does, because I think... And, and even I, because I really shouldn't be saying that. I've been called a scout, and I've done scouting and all that stuff. But, you know, unless you work for a team and actually do what a scout does, you're not a scout. You're an analyst. And there's no degree of separation between the two, and it's not a detrimental moniker or whatever you want to call it. it it is what it is your your job as a scout is on the line when you make your decisions as an analyst you're just spouting an opinion your yeah. job isn't on the line yeah so anyway so my job this summer is to create those 12 profiles for every for every team and and it's going to involve a ton more watching and re-watching and 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 yeah, that's and, and the McKean's yearbook that would be coming out in like August, September. That's correct. We have a draft guide coming out right before the June draft. Uh, that's being taken care of by Ryan Wagman, and I'm the main point guy for the yearbook, which is an annual that comes out every August. Awesome, guys. Mr. X's and O's. Thanks for coming on again. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation.